Ladies and gentlemen and Corner Kick fam, welcome back to an explosive edition of the Corner Kick podcast. Now, we know a lot of stuff has happened since Nathan and I last came to you on Sunday evening. <laughs> what the fuck? <laughs> <laughs> to, be, to be clear to our audience, we are recording this in the midst of Armageddon-like thunderstorms throughout New England. There is an Armageddon so in the game, and there is an Armageddon outside my window right now. It is it is truly the end of days. Oh my god, that was actually shockingly loud. Anyways. Well, this podcast is already off to a chaotic start, so let me introduce the two other members of this podcast. I am joined by a man who is proud to be what the European Super League calls a legacy fan. It is Caleb Rhodes. That's right. Proud to be one of the three teams that didn't wimp out. And, uh, <laughs> but, uh, but hello. And hello. I, am also, I am also joined by a man who did not go on Spanish TV and seem your shit all over himself. It is Nathan Strauss. Definitely up there with one of the most damning interviews of all time. Like, just a baffling PR strategy to go out on like a live drama TV show and literally just shit all over the rest of the world. Um, we'll get for, like, to that. Thirty minutes. We'll get to that. Also, if you don't like swearing, this might not be the podcast for you. Um, <laughs> this is this is raw, unfiltered corner kick yep. at a raw, unfiltered moment in world soccer. So, since Nathan and I recorded, a lot of stuff has happened including the quick rise and demise of the proposed European Super League. So allow me to run you through some of the key events that have led us to this moment as we sit here on Wednesday, April 21st. So we all woke up on Monday. The European Super League had been announced. The 12 clubs had all put out statements. Um, Ironically, very few of the actual club owners attached their names to said statements. In fact, on the Liverpool website, we woke up to a statement from Joel Glazer plastered over LiverpoolFC.com. There was a game that was played on Monday between Liverpool and Leeds. Liverpool's bus was unable to easily access the ground due to a massive fan protest of Liverpool fans who traveled to Ellen Road and Leeds fans. Jurgen Klopp came out before the game saying that he his opinion of the Super League had not changed since his original quotes in 2019, saying that he thought it was a bad idea. It was clear that he was really frustrated with the fact that this is this had come out during the season and particularly during the preparation for this game, and also the fact that the players were also thrown under the bus by the ownership. James Milner came out after Liverpool's 1-1 draw with Leeds, saying that he doesn't like it one bit and that he doesn't hope it happens. Fast forward to Tuesday, we wake up in the morning to a massive protest outside of Stamford Bridge and also with the news that there are two English Premier League clubs who are buckling under the weight of all of the backlash and are considering leaving the European Super League. Massive fan protests outside of Stamford Bridge. Chelsea fans confront Chelsea technical director Petr Cech outside of the grounds as the Chelsea bus is also not able to access the stadium. The Chelsea game was postponed 
due to these protests by 15 minutes. And inside of 30 minutes of these protests occurring and Petrček being confronted, it is announced that Chelsea have begun documentation to withdraw from the European Super League. After Chelsea, the ball really gets rolling again here in the form of Manchester City announcing that they would be withdrawing from the European Super League after a press conference from Pep Guardiola saying that, hey, he's not really in favor of this thing, and he also wasn't consulted about this prior to City making the announcement. We also saw streaming service and Premier League partner Amazon.com putting out a statement showing their opposition to the Super League, which was a sign that things might not be going in the direction that all of these owners thought it might. Then after City... Uh, pulled out of the Super League. We saw massive news that Manchester United chairman and CEO Ed Woodward would be stepping down at the end of the season. And we also saw that the pressure was on Juventus chairman Andrea Agnelli and Fiorentino Perez, who, as we mentioned before, gave a wild and spectacular Oscar De La Hoya on cocaine style interview on Spanish TV, essentially making all of these claims, which have turned out to be Uh, Maybe not so strong. We'll go into those later. Chelsea, Manchester City had announced that they had left the European Super League, followed by the following English clubs. Arsenal issued an apology to their fans in the form of an open letter. Liverpool FC issued one of the most despicable, shitty statements I have ever seen. It is a 47-word statement. It would have taken me 60 seconds to write this piece of shit. We'll get into that. Uh, Tottenham removed themselves from the European Super League, as well as Manchester United, who Joel Glazer issued an open letter to the fans. Today, we woke up to Atletico Madrid, leaving the European Super League. As of right now, the only teams left in the competition are Barcelona, Real Madrid, and Juventus. However, Joan Laporta, the new Barcelona president, has stated that it'll be up to the socios as to whether or not they continue on with the project. So that's everything. Caleb Rhodes, I'm going to go to you first since you haven't gotten your chance to share your opinions on this podcast. What has your thinking been on everything that has happened from Sunday, the league being announced through the protests on Monday and Tuesday to the acceleration of all of these clubs leaving and also, you know, the massive sort of media fan player, because we should also mention that players came out en masse. There was a statement from Jordan Henderson and the Liverpool squad before Liverpool announced that they would be leaving. There was also condemnations from a lot of Manchester City players, Patrick Bamford, I think this is probably the most united front we have ever seen in the soccer world. What has been your thoughts on all of this? Now I get to give you all of my thoughts. How much, how much time do you have? I mean, what's obviously I think this is, this whole thing is a horrible idea. Um, First of all, because it's not even made up of the, you know, 12 best teams in Europe. Like the fact that like Arsenal and Tottenham are in here is just kind of funny. They are not remotely top teams at this point. Sorry, Nathan. More so Spurs, but but honestly, like it's it's a little bit laughable. But they are big brands. I think what shocks me though the most is how, you know, mostly Perez, but I guess the other chair people that went along really did this as like a coup. They tried to kind of like like my favorite story, I think Nick, you sent this to me, is the fact that Agnelli lied to Seferin like hours before this announcement. And 
they have a very close relationship because Seferin is literally like the what the godfather of one of Agnelli's children. So like they really were trying to like pull the rug out from under UEFA as best as they can. And it was crazy how secret they kept it too. Like by not telling the managers, by not getting the fans, they thought that if they had all of the, the quote unquote biggest brands, that they would be able to pull this off just because they represent so much of the value of soccer. And I think obviously it's going to fail at this point. Like it's not going to happen. The Barcelona socios are probably going to reject it. It might be Perez proclaiming Madrid as the inaugural champions of the ESL by default. I could, I could totally be it. Um, but what's scary to me is the fact that honestly had PSG, Dortmund and Bayern signed on to this, I think it would have succeeded. And second, just because this failed doesn't mean that all of the problems in soccer have gone away. It doesn't change the fact that a lot of European leagues still remain very uncompetitive, like the Bundesliga, like Ligue And so while this particular project was both wrongheaded, was essentially done as like a kind of civil war against soccer and ultimately didn't work, it points to the fact that the system as it stands is not working and something's going to have to give at some point. Um, and I don't know what that is, but I think we should, I don't think this is the last time we're going to hear of like the idea of majorly restructuring European football competition. Yeah. Nathan, we'll get to where we go from here in a minute, but I just want to, obviously, since you and I spoke on Sunday, we were pretty worried that the this was going to become a reality and we were going to see the tide in the modern game shift in a way that would be completely uh, inequitable. That did not end up happening because the organization of this <laughs> league was potentially one of the worst rollouts I have ever seen of all time. They clearly had no player, manager, or fan backing. No one was consulted from any like major shareholders. And if they were, then their opinion wasn't really taken into account. Um, there was no sponsorship deal ahead of time. There was no TV rights deal acquired ahead of time. There was... In fact, we saw Liverpool actually lose sponsorships because of this. There were no like pundits who were asked about this. The media was totally not on their side because they weren't informed ahead of time and it would take away from their domestic rights that they already have. I think Caleb is right when he calls this a coup, but as soon as Chelsea pulled out of this, it was dead in the water because of how poorly structured this entire thing was set up. So what do you think? How do you think this is going to reflect? Obviously, you're an Arsenal fan. I think we're all our backs, Premier League fans specifically, our backs are all now turned on these owners if they weren't already. Where do you where do these owners go from here after this thing was such a colossal failure and they gambled with everything they had, including the goodwill from the fans, and they lost? Yeah. So I think a couple things. So you were talking about how the rollout was so poor. And I think that's one of the things that makes me hesitant to believe that this was even real. Yeah, they look. They look. Just first of all, it looked like they designed that website in like five fucking minutes. It looked like a budget energy drink company. Well, right. That but, website. But you. But you don't get four point five billion dollars in investments from J.P. Morgan without getting Deloitte involved, without getting a professional, you know, sports consultant to ensure that your rollout goes smoothly. Like we're talking about. Like, I've been behind the scenes with what it takes to roll out 
a USL soccer club. So a second division American soccer club. And we're talking about like multiple consulting firms, you know, securing all of the potential social media usernames. Like this was so haphazard. It honestly looked like something that we would have done in our senior project to like, you know, like what would a potential European Super League look like? And it's just baffling. And I, I, I obviously there are the conspiracy theorists who are going to be like, oh, this entire thing was just like done um, you know, under the cover of darkness to try and swing the discourse in favor of UEFA and in, in favor of the new Swiss format, which we'll get onto later. But I'm not totally sure that I'm all the way there, but it does just seem like a remarkable amount of arrogance from these 12 owners who are by and large um, asshole billionaires who clearly don't understand the spirit of the game. Now, when we talked on Sunday, Nick, I sort of made the analogy that I felt like I had been like broken up with by the club. Arsenal's apology letter yesterday, I think, was, first of all, it was far and away the best of the six English clubs. I think it also revealed the most out of like why they decided to join the league. Yeah. Yeah. And Arsenal, I think we kind of knew, or at least I sort of knew as an Arsenal fan that the motivations behind this were, if it's going to happen, we'd rather it happen with us in it than with us, with, than with us out on the outside. But if, if getting broken up with was Sunday morning, that letter was basically Arsenal, like getting down on one knee and like playing me a song of forgiveness outside my window. There's obviously a long way to go. And I think my animosity was always directed towards the owners in this whole thing, not just for Arsenal, but basically across the board. Like, if anything, it actually showed to me how little animosity I actually harbor towards fans of other teams. Being a fan is all about supporting a club, not about supporting the the overarching business structures. And I think while I had been hesitant to sort of support Kroenke in the past, and I think, Nick, you had been... You had been critical of of FSG in terms of some of their investments, but also, you know, we have to acknowledge that largely, you know, the reasons that certain teams have been successful is because of this investment. I think now we're seeing, you know, just in the last week alone, a huge rise in sort of, I guess, fan first populism amongst these clubs, particularly in England, where, you know, there aren't socios. Um, And I think that's something that's really positive going forward for the future. So I'm sorry that rambled a little bit going off of your initial question, but there was sort of that, that there's a lot going on. Yeah. So the government is conducting an independent fan led review uh, based kind of off of what Gary Neville was asking for with an independent regulator to look into these clubs and how they sort of run their businesses and whether or not, because it has been known that the FA and the English government are quite envious of the German 50 plus one model. So, I think there is potential that, you know, this fan empowerment continues into something like that, certainly since I think there's no way back for a lot of the a lot of these owners. Yeah, I mean, it's crazy how in the course of 24 hours, people like Woodward and Agnelli went from feeling like they were masters of the universe to being like, I guess, did Agnelli formally resign? No, he's still on. He's still on board. Okay. There's massive. He received a lot of heat. Yeah. Yeah. And like. Woodward actually resigned and it seems to me like Man U and Madrid were kind of the main architects of of this whole thing but I think it does show like the massive disconnect between 
the fans and the ownership and also the extent to which ownership truly controls soccer. Um, and I think it's interesting because we think of soccer, at least European soccer everywhere as being like a much more organic sport that arose from like the people that got established as these old clubs and that have sort of continued to grow into sort of, you know, modern sports enterprises in a way that's very different to American sports in a lot of ways where we see franchises literally like leave cities and go to different places where leagues control everything, where there's is a lot of anti-competitivity in the sense that there's no sense of relegation and promotion where teams can actually choose to be bad um, in order to try to succeed. And for a while I've said that, and this is a different point from ownership, although I think in American sports, ownership is you know a lot more top-down and there's very little fan control at all. But I've said for a while that one of the reasons I don't like MLS is because it essentially has all the features that the Super League was, was trying to have. And I've always said that I want like MLS, for instance, to be more like European soccer. However, I did not predict that that would come in the form of European soccer looking more like MLS. But I think there is a pretty di- big disconnect between American sporting culture, which I think is a lot more based off of consumption of entertainment rather than connection to the team. Not totally, but in a lot of ways and on the balance of things versus you know European soccer, which I think connects a lot more deeply to the fabric of local communities. And this was a move away from the latter in place of the former in a way that's, I think, somewhat inevitable, especially as these clubs try to grow. Um, and they try to appeal to audiences around the world, but it is a tension that they will have to, to, to deal with. And I think they dealt with particularly poorly here. And we, it was, and that was only possible because ownership has so much power. Yeah. What this was, Nathan, and they sort of indicated that themselves, these owners in that first original statement from Paris, we have to, we have to talk about Paris's appearance on Spanish television because it was absolutely incredible. But I think John Henry's video apology said a lot to me about what he thought this was and what he thinks his responsibility is to the fans and supporters of Liverpool. And I can only speak specifically about Liverpool because I'm not you know, a fan of these other teams in the Premier League. However, I think what he said in his statement was, and I'm going to paraphrase here, we would never have done this if we felt that the fans wouldn't be on board. And I'm like, that's just a lie. Like, that's a lie because, like, you clearly didn't consult anyone at the club. Kenny Dalglish, who is still currently employed by Liverpool in a non-executive director role, was not consulted about this. And he tweeted, Kenny Dalglish never tweets in opposition to Liverpool. Kenny Dalglish is essentially, and I, I love Kenny, but he's essentially like an ambassador puppet for the club now. He tweeted in opposition to this. Even he wasn't consulted. And it's just one of those things where it's like, if you're going to be greedy, be greedy. But don't lie to the faces of the people that support these teams. And I just don't, personally, from FSG's perspective, they can never come to a game in Anfield again without getting some serious pushback from fans. There's going to be massive protests across the Premier League this week. We saw one at White Hart Lane, or we saw one at White Hart Lane at the Tottenham Hotspur Stadium today. We're going to see one at Old Trafford on Saturday. We're probably going to see one at Anfield from now until FSG leaves the club because that's so badly Liverpool fans have been hurt by this. What do you think is the future of 
you know, the government may be getting involved with these clubs trying to, you know, put a stop to ownership being able to do whatever they want. Because I think this has been coming for a long time, as the three of us have sort of indicated, uh, since Roman Abramovich bought Chelsea in 2004, more and more billionaires have come into the Premier League. Because if this has ended up going to a legal challenge, I think as we saw with Manchester City lawyering up against UEFA last year, these teams and these owners have way more legal firepower to push through anything than over UEFA, really, because that's just like the power of these individuals running these teams. Yeah, I think in many ways, this European Super League is, you know, a byproduct of 30 some odd years of, you know, soccer tinted neoliberalism where, you know, starting with the first huge broadcast deals for the Premier League, um, which were initially just, you know, Sky Sports um, and then leading to the sort of multinational broadcast era of soccer, you've seen tons of money flow in um, combined with the Bosman ruling. And the growth of the game, um, you know, across Europe and, and uh, indeed across the whole world. And you basically have this, you know, multi-billion dollar industry that has sprung up with basically no regulation whatsoever, um, whether that be from local governments or from sort of umbrella organizations like UEFA or FIFA. And I think this really shows the need for stricter regulation. And I'm not saying this as sort of, you know, a, a liberal or left-wing view, like, oh, we need to, like, tax, you know, soccer teams. I just think that in order to sustain soccer, there needs to be a more formal oversight, um, maybe by domestic governments and maybe by an organization like FIFA that prevents teams from spending into oblivion. Because what we saw was this very distinctly, you know, neoliberal income gap or wealth gap that was exacerbated over the course of many, many years. And it's something that this year, this new Swiss format is only going to continue um, to widen with teams getting in based on, um, you know, past history in the competition. So I think ideally we want to see a situation in which the teams that perform the best are rewarded um, and that the, the risk of not spending doesn't outweigh um you know, the sensible decision-making. Like, I think we've seen teams spend themselves into oblivion with money that they don't have. You know, teams like Blackburn, uh, or Blackpool, rather. Um, and even teams like Arsenal and Spurs, who basically are so desperate for the funding that they agreed to jump ship despite not being anywhere near a top-12 team in Europe. So I think it's entirely possible that where we have to sort of reckon with something that Caleb said in the chat the other day, which is that soccer is not designed to be inherently profitable. But throughout the Premier League era, we've seen owners and owners in the form of, um, you know, literally like state rulers, um, oligarchs, multimillionaires and billionaires use soccer as a way to further their own personal goals. But I think we need to reckon with what it actually means to own a soccer club and and how a moral way is to do that, that actually treats fans with fairness and respect. Yeah, Caleb, I want to, I want to, we'll circle back to this, but I, I think Nathan made an interesting point at the beginning of his statements there. The media played a critical role in shooting this down. And I think we saw that on Sunday with the viral Gary Neville clip where he essentially put all the missiles in the chamber and aimed them at Old Trafford 
and Anfields. Jamie Carragher also came out and spoke strongly against his club. Sky Sports had wall-to-wall coverage of how this was the shittiest idea of all time because they were looking to protect their interests in the, the, the Premier League and the money that they make from that. I think you saw everyone from the BBC to Barstool Sports to the fucking Pat McAfee show cover this shit. You saw wall-to-wall yeah. coverage of NBC, obviously, you know, here in the States, NBC Sports. This was everything that they could talk about. Even in-game, Arlo White was giving you updates about what was happening in the world of the Super League. Everyone on the media side of this were united against the Super League, including, as we stated already, Amazon, who are a big partner of the of the Premier League. And I think it is interesting that PSG decided not to join this because they're massive stakeholders and partners with Bean Sports, who obviously are one of the big carriers of the Champions League. If the media can work overtime, essentially, to try and shoot this down when it is beneficial for them. And obviously, I think a huge part of this was Perez going on TV and fucking shitting, shitting bricks in real time to, and I think that really like showed people, Oh wait, this might not be as airtight as we thought it was. If the media can do its role like this and work essentially 48 hours straight to shoot something like this down, what do you, how do you feel like they're going to be empowered going forward? I think I understand what you're saying because this was like a a big display of sort of solidarity across fandoms, but also across platforms. And I think we shouldn't forget the fact that, five months ago these were channels that were trying to charge 15 pounds to watch like fulham versus brighton that's my point so it's not yeah so it's not exactly as if like like, no one is good here and like when i find myself agreeing with like sam's army or like people who i generally like have blocked because of reasons like that's when you know that's when you know that you're in the right yeah um but 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 yeah i think there are a couple of things that we should address about this because one, the mobilization in response to this has been so much faster than it has been to any other issue, whether that be racism or sexism in the global game. But on the other hand, I think broadcasters and media partners are really important in this sort of next wave of, of oversight because of how influential they are in determining how and how much money gets to these clubs. So ensuring that there is an equitable solution that sort of incentivizes all parties to work together and also maybe strays a little bit from the state-sponsored partnerships like you mentioned with Bean. Um, these are all things that need to be considered um, as new contracts and new streaming services like Dazon, 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 Dazon. Wait, oh, D-A-Z-N. Dazon. Yeah, I don't know how to pronounce it. Dazon. As as different streaming services and the sort of, you know, the streaming model becomes more popular as well. Yeah, I mean, like on one hand, you can have the the non-cynical take that says, you know, people like Gary Neville, Jamie Carragher, Arlo White, they're they're so embedded in the game. They've been reared on it and they feel and I, I believe this, authentically troubled by these developments. However, as you said, there's also a massive monetary interest because we should remember that as this is going down, they're changing the format to the Champions League. They're trying to find new TV deals for the Premier League. And something like this would completely obliterate the value of that. And I think it's funny because 
you know, there was definitely an opportunity for like one media company to, because to my knowledge, there's no carrier for the ESL going no, into this. they announced this without any broadcast partnerships yeah, or sponsors. Like, there was totally an opportunity for like ESPN to be like, and we will be the like home of ESL, right? Well, they were going to market this to like Disney and all the streaming companies or, or I think they were going to get someone on board to make them a streaming service. A lot of this was because something like this massively essentially takes all of the value out of all of the existing contracts in in European soccer broadcasting. And so, of course, the media has to come out against it because, you know, their fundamental core business was essentially getting taken away. Um, so, so that's how I understand um, By the way, media, media aside from Alexi Lalas, who, of course, supported it. No, right. Yeah, of course. Yeah. But like... Alexi Lawless does his own thing. Like, we don't really know. Like, what's that meme where it's like, what is going on in his head? And it's like, no, it's just the fucking Star Spangled Banner on. No, I think that is. I think he just kind of like is on like an eagle most of the time. Point is, Alexi Lawless aside, the media was against this because they were staring the end of their business. Because this would be the only league worth carrying. Like ESPN probably already gets a ton of value from just having like the cup games, right? Like NBC Sports, they really only need the Premier League. And most of the games in the Premier League aren't probably driving a ton of revenue for them. It really is only those matches against big six teams. Even this year, I bet ratings for like Leicester versus Liverpool are like orders of magnitude lower than the ratings for Arsenal versus Liverpool, despite the fact that Leicester are well on their way to finishing in the top form. Well, the games, but the games between like Manchester United and Liverpool and Manchester United and Man City break records every single year for American soccer viewership viewership on, you know, English speaking TV. I think the interesting thing here is this like sort of bridge between the media you know, getting on their soapbox and shooting this thing down quite efficiently, honestly. And also what we saw at Stanford Bridge, where all it took was essentially 30 minutes of protesting, essentially to make this thing crumble. And Carl Anka put out a really good tweet where he said, you know, this is the opportunity to make the game what we want to make it, make it to be. Like, we, this, is, this is our chance to, you know, push things we want to see pushed forward. And that brings me to the Swiss format of the Champions League. We all knew this was coming, but because the Super League blew up everything else in the media cycle on Monday, they snuck in these reforms under the cover of darkness, essentially, Nathan. And we're going to have over 100 new Champions League games. This is the opposite of what many coaches and players want. Uh, We're going to have priority for these Super League teams because the legacy teams are going to be allowed into the competition far more easily than ever before. And... We're we're essentially doing the Super League with a few extra steps. If I'm a member of UEFA, I'm shitting myself over the fact that like all of this backlash came at one time and so so quick and fierce. Do you think there's a chance we see this in any form, or ha- or has this been like a total win for UEFA because they're getting all the big boys back? It doesn't look like they're going to have to punish them too severely, and they've pushed through this reform that is going to make them and all of these big boys even more money than ever before. Yeah, so I'm not necessarily opposed to the entirety of the Swiss format, and maybe that's like controversial to say, but 
in essence, like expanding it from six games in the group stage to 10 and sort of eliminating the groups. Yes, it sort of makes it easier for teams that win more often to win, but that's not really that big of a deal. I think the main issue for me is teams getting in without merit and teams getting in based on history. And that to me sort of has the same tone as being called a legacy fan, you know, where you're letting teams that are just on the basis of their brand part of this competition. And it totally annihilates the purpose of using domestic leagues to qualify. So that is concerning to me. And that's something that I wonder, you know, I wonder if that could be bargained away, but, you know, functionally 10 European match nights in, in the group, in the quote unquote group stage, instead of six, like as a consumer, I'm kind of okay with that because like, great, more opportunities to watch these teams in Europe. Like that's, you know, four to $14 million more for my team, depending on if they win, lose or draw. Um, and yeah, obviously fixture congestion is, is bad. And I wonder if it could lead to the elimination of one of the domestic cups, at least in England. It won't. Be. Um, but it will. Yeah, it's but it, it probably won't. Right. And so I think it's concerning for UEFA because they've managed to look like the good guys here. If, if a rising tide carries all ships, then a sinking tide lowers all ships. Like, United lost like 15% of the value on their stocks yesterday. Like it's really bad what could happen to these teams and to these leagues who are kind of dependent on fan support. So I would be kind of nervous if I were Seferin or um, any of the the sort of newly appointed leaders of UEFA after this giant reshuffling. You mean the ECA? Or the ECA. Yeah. Okay. I, I have a few things to say about the Swiss format. You know... What other sports use the Swiss format? Chess. And Petanque. <laughs> what the fuck is Petanque? It's like, it's like, it's like French bocce. It's French bocce. I believe they had it in Wii Sports Resort. It was one of the less popular games. <laughs> and actually quite hard to control with the... I was, was playing... Yeah, I was playing basketball and bowling and, and oh, you were playing, playing the, the stick fighting one. <laughs> wait, actually, you, wait. Yeah. Yeah. Actually, archery... The archery was really wait, fun. Wait, let me just check Sports that. Resort. Well, I, the only reason I know it's chess is because I used to play chess and I'm f- quite familiar with the Swiss format. And let me tell you, if it's exhausting playing chess in the Swiss format, I can't imagine playing soccer in the Swiss format. Oh, okay. Sorry, sorry, sorry. It was not... Wii Sports Resort, it was in Deca Sports 2, which was another like multi sport kind of like you were playing off-brand. like the off brand, you were playing like the off brand Wii Sports Resort. But here's the Resort thing, but I got time. to play Petonk, dude. Deca Sports 2 <laughs> sounds like a league where like everyone is juicing. Oh my <laughs> god, Deca Sports, everyone just got like really massive upper bodies and everyone's legs are tiny. One of the reviews for Deca Sports 2 on gamesradar.com from 2009 the cons include the arenas <laughs> seem <laughs> oddly lifeless, most mini games are boring or broken. <laughs> That sounds like a great description for the Super League. The arenas would have been lifeless and the games would have been boring and broken. <laughs> um, but I, I think, I, I think I, I don't know. I don't think the solution to the Champions League was to make it bigger. bigger. I think the solution was to actually make it more difficult. How about you make it the Champions League where we go back to it's like the, the European Cup Winners' Cup where it's like, it's the champions, or maybe even like, you know, the runners-up. I think the whole coefficient thing needs to go. 
like Caleb said, I think this needs to be a harder competition to access with a fairer share of the profit. Yeah, I mean, I don't, I don't totally support like just limiting it to like cup winners because I'm not sure that would make it more competitive. That would just like lock out some of the better teams beforehand. Yeah, well, I don't, but think, I, I don't think fully cup winners cup, but I think certainly uh, not making it a 36 team league. Yeah, and I think what's kind of lost here is you know now we've had discussions of a new league that's going to fail, and then a change to like the most important trophy in European football. And what's totally lost is like any concern for like player welfare at all. And this is something we've talked about a lot. But like if you're a top player, like a champ, like at a Champions League team, you're already playing like 50 plus games a year. And with this, you're probably pushing that closer to like 60 plus games a year. And I don't think I don't think players are going to be able to handle it. Like I think we've already seen a lot of injuries we already saw a lot of injuries during COVID in general, just from, you know, people being out of practice. But I think this is just bad from managing the actual human capital that that makes soccer work. UEFA are not the good guys here, for sure. The Swiss format is objectively, I think, going to be bad. And yeah, that's where I'm at with it. Yeah, I'm not, I'm opposed to the Swiss format. I think everything that Caleb said there was spot on. I also think it's just going to create an even more spacious divide between the rich and the less rich. Especially because especially because the Europa Conference League is basically doing the same thing. Like we now have we now have in theory three tiers of European competition again to provide a, a financial have. boost. Right. And they took away the Euro, or they took away the 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 previous third third tier competition, the Intertoto Cup, and they now the realize cup, which Arsenal ever won, I think. They now realize yeah. that oh hey, we want to make even more money because you know we're bleeding money to these big teams, so we need to bring in a third tier competition to try and increase the value of our media rights. I want to bring us back to so clearly we already have an issue of small clubs versus big clubs. The European Super League would have made that completely untenable. It probably is somewhat untenable as it is. But what are the actual means of redistributing power in European soccer, considering we're talking like across countries, across leagues, across different TV deals? Like, I don't. Yeah, I was just wondering if you had any further thoughts. I think it's interesting because today we saw the 14 other Premier League clubs come out and say that, you know, the six executives of these teams essentially should be removed from their positions on the executive committee of the Premier League and should be, you should no longer be making decisions on behalf of their clubs. So I think that's step one is like all these other teams saying that we want no part of decision-making in these leagues if it includes discussions with these owners. Because like I said, these owners have like fundamentally turned their backs on the game and the people that, you know, they're meant to be custodians of and the clubs that they're meant to be custodians of. And I think, you know, you know, step one is, eliminating any decision making that these guys have i think we're already starting to see that with you know woodward leaving the club all these fan protests and stuff like that the other thing is the government is going to have to intercede here and i'm not a huge fan of like governments coming in and you know getting their hands on sports but i don't see any other way that the power of these you know wealthiest people in the world can be regulated without some serious government oversight. And it's in the best interest, particularly in England, 
where there's not as many tourist attractions as there are, you know, in America and other countries. I don't know if you guys know this, the monarchy isn't looking so great as an attraction right now for England. The Premier League, especially with Brexit being what it is, is a massive attraction for the whole of Britain. And I think they need to do whatever they can to put some regulations in place and put some power back into the, the the hands of the people who actually care about these clubs, which are the fans. So I have, I think, first of all, we have to acknowledge that like soccer has never been about parody. Like throughout the course of, I guess, modern soccer, we've seen, you know, 10 year eras where certain teams both on the club and international level have dominated. Like you think about Brazil in the late nineties through early two thousands or Spain from 2006 to 2014 or so there are there will always be teams that by virtue of tactical or person or or personal and like greatness will be able to do better than other teams Um, but one thing that I do think could be done is I think over the next 10 years or so implementing a universal um, you know hard spending cap across at least European teams. I think it would probably only work as a UEFA measure. And I think it would kind of cement what we already know to be true, which is that Europe is the center of the soccer world. And I think that's problematic for a number of reasons, but it's objectively true, um, especially while leagues like the MLS kind of operate doing their own thing. And so while FFP was sort of designed to prevent teams from spending into oblivion, It basically just gave teams license to do that because the punishment was like, oh, you actually have to spend more money. Or in the case of of Man City, they lawyered up with more expensive lawyers than UEFA was able to, you know, offer up themselves. Well, right. So if 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 the punishment for exceeding a, a rule is just spending money and the rule itself is about spending money, it's always going to be ineffective. So whether it comes in the form of sort of league-wide salary caps to ensure that you don't have a team like City basically buy up as much talent as possible for as high prices as possible, um, or whether it's in the form of, you know, more sensible transfer prices. Like, there's really no reason why a market should exist in which a player can be sold for, like, $222 million. Like, thinking about it, like, yes, it makes sense in terms of, like, market value, but it's also a sign that the market itself is just out of control. Um, and I think we actually sort of talked about this back in, like, 2017, you know, when we were looking at some of the transfers that were going on then, like, the Gilfie Sigurdsson move. Like, there's, the market has become so inflated that it actually needs to be regulated. And it needs to be regulated both domestically, but also over, the, over um, like, the continent as a whole. And so UEFA and FIFA need to find a set of reforms that are both legal because you can't you can't restrict trade um, because it's illegal, um, but also comprehensive enough that you were not seeing teams um, just spend willy nilly. And I'm not sure what that solution is because I'm not an economist, nor am I um, a business person. Um, and I'm not advocating for like a full on Americanization where we see, you know, a salary cap, a luxury tax, like because that wouldn't work with the soccer economy because it's so global. But there does have to be a way to constrain the market. A little I think bit. it's tough though because FIFA's I think one of the reasons why FIFA was kind of shitting themselves over all this is because they want to expand the Club World Cup in the coming years. 
and include like a bunch of new teams and revamp that competition so they can sell that for a massive amount of money and kind of boost their own revenue. So I think as long as UEFA and FIFA are focused on expansion and including more teams and including more owners, I think it's going to be tough to even, you know, broach the idea of having any sort of salary cap or stuff like that. Yeah, I'm very skeptical of, I don't know, like what government does here. I think the best path for it is UEFA needs to actually create a type of FFP regulation that has some teeth. Um, And I think it has to all be about clubs actually managing finances within their means. Like a lot of, in a lot of ways, you know, this Super League was a kind of get out of debt free card for clubs like Barcelona and Madrid that are just like, you know, have been shockingly mismanaged over the last decade and have debts, you know, at or near a billion dollars. And if they got, you know, $400 million up front, that would, you know, <laughs> that'd make a pretty, pretty big dent. Not not actually the biggest dent, but a dent. Um, well, I think eventually that $400 million would turn into, you know. Well, it'd be into more. But, but my point is like that, that, that would be like a huge step towards solvency. I personally am very skeptical of the idea of like setting limits on transfer fees because ironically that would only empower the big clubs more um, because they'd, like imagine if Mbappe was only like 70 million and that was like the max transfer fee. I also don't think, I think the biggest issues with inflation in soccer aren't actually at the extremes. Like the problem isn't that Neymar gets sold for like 200 million. It's the problem. The, the bigger problem is that players like Gilfie Sigurdsson are going for like 40 million, right? And like no clubs should be paying that much for a player like that. West Ham's and Everton's should not be spending $50 million on players. Newcastle shouldn't be spending $40 million on like Joe Linton, et cetera. Like that is where the market distortions are. Um, and I'm not totally sure what the answer is, but it seems to me like a lot of these issues do stem from the fact that FFP was meant to rein some of this behavior in. And it has proven time and time again completely incapable of doing so, especially in the face of oligarch owners that are really clever with how they move their money around. And even though they're not allowed to like directly sponsor their team, still find ways to pump money into the club. I think UEFA is the body that has to regulate this. And I think that comes through better FFP. I think the fans also play a part in this too, because as you know, we saw with Barcelona, you know, there's a huge momentum swing that is turning into the positive direction for that club. You know, they just won their first trophy since 2018. Yeah, wait, let's talk about that for a minute. I did that for you. (laughs) (laughs) They just won the Copa del Rey. They just won their first trophy since 2018. And obviously Laporta has brought, I think, a massive, you know, sway of positive momentum for that team. But now it's like, do the socios feel betrayed? Is there going to be, you know, any backlash? Because I think, a lot of the coverage that we've seen has been very Anglo-centric. We haven't, I haven't seen much reaction from, you know, fans of Juventus, from Barcelona, from Madrid. And I think that's just because, you know, the cycle in America is quite linked to the Premier League. I, I wonder, you know, what the way forward is for these fans cooperating with their owners to try and come up with more sustainable models. Because I think this isn't just like an American problem either. Like there are shitty owners all over the place. You know, you look at Valencia and the way that Peter Lim has just stripped every single asset out of that club. You look at, you know, Newcastle and Mike Ashley, which Caleb has already mentioned, 
the fact that he runs such an unsustainable club and he doesn't give a shit about like any of the fans, the players, or anything other than you know his bottom line and using Newcastle to be essentially you know uh, a sports direct advertisement. I think there needs to be like uh, a sustainable way to run these clubs going forward that has more involvement from all corners of the soccer world and not just, you know, the people who are fronting these essentially corporate interests, which is, it's going to be a tough, it's going to be a tough task. In theory. Yeah. I think in theory, a 50 plus one kind of rule would go a long way in addressing that just because you would be prevented from having basically a tyrant or a dictator at the head of your of your club, and ostensibly that is what Stan Kroenke has been for Arsenal. Well, Stan Kroenke literally bought the shares of Arsenal fans who had owned from Alisher. Well, he right he he took shares away from Arsenal supporters trust. He bought out Alisher Usmanov uh, maybe seven years ago now to become a majority stakeholder. But if we abolish the idea of majority stakeholders. Yes then we wouldn't have these predatory owners in the first place. You wouldn't have a Jack Elliott of um, a venture capital or a vulture hedge fund in New York purchasing up a floundering and debt-laden team like AC Milan the same way he purchased up the debt-laden bonds of Argentina. Like, There's a really simple solution, and that is returning at least majority shares to the fans who would then have some sort of veto power um, as well as a financial stake. Because if we acknowledge, like we said all the way at the beginning of the show that soccer isn't supposed to be, that clubs aren't supposed to be profit-driven, they're supposed to be results-driven, then in theory, there would be room to profit, but only if the results came, rather than, you know, seeking to run a club like a business, like what, you know, um, Sheikh Mansour does, or what Roman Abramovich does, um, or what FSG does, and sort of stripping it down for parts, and doing things like not funding the women's team equally. Like, viewing profit as secondary to the goals of the well-being of the club is something that could very easily be accomplished when you have a really strong fan presence occupying 51% or more of the of the shareholders. I, I mean, yes, I think having more fan ownership is probably a good thing. I don't think the 50 plus one rule is by any means like a panacea. And I really just like we have to talk about how un- uncompetitive the Bundesliga is all the time, where the 50 plus one rule exists and the fact that Bayern are what about to win their ninth or 10th title in a row, despite the investment that you know Red Bull has made in Leipzig. In order to make soccer work, it needs to be competitive. And the reason it becomes non-competitive is not only through the distortions of money, but 50 plus one rule itself can end up being a distortion and prevent you know, leagues being competitive. And it's that type of thing that draws people into wanting something like the European Super League, where you have, on average, really good teams, not just brands fighting each other. And so I don't think simply giving power back to the fans solves some of the issues outside of the Premier League mostly that yeah. make soccer not interesting to people and that make it already not working as a sport. Like it's no real surprise to me really that like Bayern and PSG didn't feel the need to join the ESL because they're already so set in their domestic leagues the way things are. And in France, it's a whole nother thing. But in the in Germany, it's because other teams simply don't have the opportunity to ever compete with Bayern at all. And so the 50 plus one rule is not some like magic bullet that solves the issues of soccer. 
yeah, I think there's needs to be a lot of, you know, decades long changes in the way that, you know, we can reintegrate the culture of soccer, like the foundational elements that, you know, like we, that the reasons why, you know, we all fell in love with soccer. I think there needs to be ways for those to be, you know, re-implemented in the game through ownership. But I also think what's wild is that even though Perez was like floundering on national television, there is some aspects of what he's saying that, you know, do hold a little bit of water. You know, the fact that the demographics in soccer are shifting away from away from the younger generation and into, you know, more of like the 30 to 49-ish demos. You look at the protest at Sanford Bridge, it is majority white males. Like I, it, there's a lack of like Asian representation. There's a lack of like people of color represented. The women's game, I think it needs to be boosted way more when we talk about, you know, implementing culture, the culture of the sport back into, you know, how we can make this whole entire game more sustainable. And I don't think, I think the thing that, you know, it all comes back to is the fact that this is going to be like a quick fix. It can all be destroyed very quickly as we've seen by the Super League, but actually trying to fix this is going to take a really, really long time. Again, there are still huge issues in in soccer as a whole that would have also been exacerbated by this, like the disparities between the women's game and Nick mentioned on our last show. But the fact that they added the potential for a women's Super League down the line when clubs that were being included in the Super League, like Real Madrid, which still doesn't have its own women's team, despite the fact that, um, you know, the women's game has been hugely popular in Spain for a number of years. Teams like Liverpool, which recently built this massive training ground, yet the women are being forced to like share their space far away. There are huge issues. And frankly, Arsenal women's are actually significantly better than Arsenal men's and have been for the majority of the last decade. But that's neither here nor there. There are huge issues with racism, with sexism, with other inequalities that exist in society that soccer is not exempt from. Um, and I would love to see the same energy and same unity being brought to tackle those issues. And, and this has shown how quickly people can rally behind a cause. I mean, this entire adventure, if you will, occurred basically over the course of what, like 60 hours. Um, and so a lot can change in a short time. And, and it would be nice to see positive change keep happening. And that's kind of a, a little st- I don't know what you would call it, a little sappy way to, to maybe re- start wrapping things up. But hopefully we see changes for the better um, in the face of what would have been you know, pretty daunting and traumatic stuff. And that is it for the Fire Festival of European Soccer. Caleb. Yes. I think we have two things to quickly, quickly touch on before we leave. Obviously, I already brought one up. How are you feeling about Barcelona winning their first trophy since 2018? I'm feeling very good. It was a really good game. Messi, honestly, Messi had a really good game. Messi scored, you know, another world-class goal against Bilbao with a darting run on the right flank. The real star of this game for me was Frankie de Jong, who was everywhere, had a goal and two assists. Just looked like probably a top five midfielder in the world. I don't know. I'm I'm very I'm very pleased with the results, and pleased to see where we can uh, finish up La Liga now. And also, there's some. I mean, you got to news... pull out of the Super League first. <laughs> no, true, <laughs> true. We have to pull out of the Super League first. I th- I have faith in the Socios, which includes you know like half the team. Anyway, 
Boyan is gonna roll up to vote. <laughs> Dude, yeah, we're gonna have Boyan, the Boyan Cam, <laughs> flying in from where does he live now? Montreal. No, I think he's back in Spain because he's, he's, he's not. Impact? He's not. Yeah, because he's not playing for the Impact anymore. And the point being, yeah, the Boyan, Boyan is gonna save Barcelona from the Super League. That's. Oh, he's a he's a free agent now. He doesn't have a club. no right, and he's a journalist, right? Didn't we discover that last time? Boyan, and come on, he's corner shockingly kick. only thirty years old. Boyan needs to come on corner kick. That's what needs to happen. I, okay, here's dude, the thing: we is totally reach out to him, dude. I bet we could get Boyan. Oh, we could. I bet we could. I like. I seriously bet we could figure it out and get him. I yeah, we'll work on it. Maybe next episode we'll have Boyan Kirkich on this podcast. Yeah, no promises, Nathan, but tune in. Tune in. Nathan, Jose Mourinho got sacked in all of this. And I think the worst, the worst part of the Super League nonsense was that we did not get to all collectively laugh at Jose Mourinho's, uh, I think, very predictable demise at Tottenham Hotspur. He was sacked on Monday morning, American time. I think we all saw this coming. There was a very odd scene at the end of a 2-2 draw at Goodison Park last week where he was going around and shaking everyone's hand associated with the club you kind of tell that he knew that this might be coming apparently he had lost everyone in the squad except for one harry kane uh it was never going to work for him at tottenham daniel levy appointed a manager so he could have an entertaining documentary which was you know quite entertaining but you know clearly not the most sustainable thing to do if you want to run a successful soccer team 29 year old director of player development ryan mason has <laughs> led Tottenham to their first victory of the post-Mourinho era, a 2-1 win over Southampton. They have a League Cup final to play this weekend against Manchester City. Uh, that they're going to lose like 8-0. What, 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 what are we even like? There's so much else to talk about, but Mourinho getting sacked, you know, Penny, Penny for your thoughts, Nathan Strauss. I, I mean, it was kind of inevitable. I think the Reading had been on the wall for a while, and it was clear basically from the start of the season that he didn't have the magic anymore. And it sort of seemed like he stopped enjoying himself a little bit. Um, and I think we saw a different side of Mourinho when he was a pundit. And I kind of think that maybe that's where his long-term future lies. Like, I don't know what he has to prove anymore. Like he was a tremendously successful manager. He has tons of trophies. And now it seems like the spectacle of his persona is just a little too heavy for him. And maybe he should go back and, and become a pundit for the next 10, 15, 20 years. And, you know, he doesn't need to worry about financing his fancy Hamoni Berico. Like, he, he should go and do something that he enjoys. But it is kind of amusing that Spurs sacked him in the middle of the time in which they were coming under, like, the most global scrutiny. It's either the most Spurs thing possible or actually a very savvy news dump kind of thing to do. Um, but also, I have nothing against Ryan Mason, I think. It's, it was great to see that Spurs offered him a job when he was unable to continue his playing career um, after that really, really dangerous head injury back in the and day. And he wasn't and, even at the club at the time that happened. And he wasn't even at the I mean, yeah, he was at Hull City at the time, I think, right? Yeah. He was at Hull City. Yeah, so I mean, uh, Spurs are a club with massive issues, both financial and in terms of their squad. Um, they have a massive fancy new stadium, and they've also lost a lot of their fan support in the last week or so, along with... Um, the rest of the big six. So I'm curious to see where they go from here. Um, I think they're going to get obliterated by Man City in the Carabao Cup this weekend. Um, Man City who just keep on rolling even when they're down to 10 men. My animosity towards Mourinho has really shrunk as his sort of proficiency has lessened. 
you know, thinking about the great Chelsea team that he managed when he and Wenger were literally fist fighting on the touchline. Um, it's sort of a not a sad decline, but a very mellow decline um, for Mourinho. And I hope he can find some some peace and success off. the So pitch. I have two options for Mourinho going forward. One, I don't think his future lies in punditry. I think 2022, Qatar is going to need a manager. Jose Mourinho is going to take. He's going to take the check, boys, and he's going to go manage Qatar at the 2022 World Cup. Or second option, you mentioned his proficiency for fighting on the touchline. I think he joins Triller. <laughs> and he fights Jake Paul and takes a dive in the first round. All I'm saying, all I'm saying is only manager to ever be sacked in the European Super League. And two, he could still win a trophy. Like there is a chance Tottenham win this weekend. Dude, think about it. New manager bounce, Guardiola resting some people before PSG. Kane is injured though. All I'm saying is it's possible. <laughs> All I'm saying, dude, Gareth Bale. He scored today. Exactly. No. Gareth Two Bale. years I, older than Ryan Mason. Yeah, dude, Ryan Mason. We don't have time to get into your history with Ryan Mason, but... I don't <laughs> I even... I just, what is your history with Ryan Mason? Caleb okay. hates Ryan Mason. Dude. Caleb, they're, they're, I don't know what it is. I think Caleb saw Ryan Mason play once... <laughs> <laughs> and he was just out on this guy. It was unbelievable. Dude, okay. He, okay. I'll, I'll just give like the brief synopsis. The man made his like first team debut and he was like 23. Completed like four passes and everyone was like, oh my God, he's a midfield god. And I was like, no. I think Tim Sherwood picked him, right? Yeah. It was like, I, I just really, I just find it annoying when like very average players get like a debut and they do very average things that you would just simply expect a soccer player to do. And they're lauded as like the future Chavi or something like that. I bet you could find some like news story that's like the next Chavi, Ryan Mason, like impresses in debut versus Norwich City right? or something like that. Like, so I don't know. I don't have anything against him as a person or a manager, but I just get irritated when players get like extremely overrated we might be getting Boyan on the next podcast we certainly are not going to be getting ryan mason as a guest on the show anytime soon <laughs> but that is going to be our show for today obviously we talked about a whole host of things hopefully we'll be able to actually talk about more soccer the next time we come from we, we come not for you we come at you next week uh we're probably gonna have seen the first legs of the champions league it's crazy that we're going to even be talking about the Premier League. It's crazy that we even like the season isn't even over yet. And we've already had like a whole thing that could have upended the game. It's just crazy. I don't even know how I'm going to react to, you know, following the rest of the season. But we will get there, I assure you. I've been Nick Vinden. Caleb Rhodes. Nathan Strauss. And we will catch you all next time.